You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kastelarsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rob last week, where he shared a very interesting approach to grouping markets into correlation clusters instead of traditional market sectors which is an area that I think is being analyzed by many firms and perhaps even implemented by some. And if you missed that conversation, in which we also answered a lot of the questions from our community, I invite you to check it out. Of course, let me also mention the latest volatility episode with Harry that came out uh, on Wednesday this week, where he spoke to the chairman of a multi-billion dollar CTA called CFM. As you know, the aim of the podcast is to inspire you as an investor. We want to be provocative without being polarizing. We want to challenge consensus narratives and to advocate how to think critically about investing in an uncertain world and to provide you with a framework and a mindset that we believe is truly robust. And if you want to help us achieve our goal, what we ask of you is that if you can comment, if you can continue to send us your questions, And if you can share these episodes with your friends, and not least if you can rate and review them in iTunes, we would greatly appreciate this, as this is the best way for us to see that you get some value from our time and dedication each week to create these episodes. And as long as that continues, we will, of course, continue to do them. With all that said, Rich, it's so great to have you back this week. How are you doing? How are things down under? Well, the southern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun at the moment, so we're getting a boiler down here as you're sort of getting snow up there. So, uh, yes, I, and and sort of to reduce this sort of um, the background sound effects, I've had to turn all of my, my fans and air conditioning off. So just make sure I don't collapse during this episode. Yes, no, I will try. I see you have, uh, you're well equipped with fluid, so we should be, we should be okay for the next uh, 60 to 75 minutes. In terms of a quick market wrap, I would say that for long-only equity investors, at least the good news was it was a short week in the US. Stocks were hammered yet again with the S&P 500 finishing the four-session stretch with a 5.7% loss to close below its 200-day moving average for the first time since March 2020, while the Nasdaq 100 locked an eye-watering 7.5% decline since last Friday. U.S. bonds, on the other hand, they were pretty unfazed by the sell-off in stocks, with the 30-year yields edging lower to a yield of 2.08%. Closer to my home, German 10-year yields turned positive this week, at least for a brief moment for the first time since 2019. Borrowing costs have been creeping higher in Germany on ex- expectations the ECB will need to reduce its stimulus measures to address inflation concerns. Just a month ago, by the way, yields were around minus 0.4%, but tightening expectations have risen. Still, the advance in yields is not so exciting for investors to pack their capital without earning anything. The sell-off in government debt highlights confidence in the growth outlook and suggests inflation is expected to remain elevated 
according to many officials. Now, I love this word, remain elevated. Um, that's an interesting choice of words, given that German December producer price index came in this week at a whopping 24.2% year-over-year change. All right, just to bring you back, Rich, um, I want to just see how you're doing, what caught your attention, um, and uh, both kind of market-wise, performance. And of course, we need to hear whether the battleship has left the docks and is undergone its annual recalibration, so to speak. Yes. the uh, I mentioned how after the uh, Black Friday event in November, um, uh, you know, it was major damage control for the following month. But I'd just like to say that uh, in regards to trend-following models like my model, when we start getting these aggressive drawdowns, um, there's actually a silver, climbing, uh, silver lining to this cloud. And that's because as you're moving into drawdown, your portfolio is releasing risk steam. So if you could imagine in Black Friday, I had these lovely long-term trends that all reversed. Um, they they basically got exited from the portfolio and the risk was released. So as you're progressively going deeper and deeper into drawdowns, the risk of your portfolio, because we use these systematic risk mitigation methods within the portfolio itself, it releases all of this risk steam so that you don't perpetually go into drawdowns like alternative systems that hold on to that risk, like buy and hold, which are always in the market, and they just close their eyes as they're entering drawdowns. And if they're in these serially correlated adverse events, they find that uh, things go non-linear on them in an adverse way very quickly. We never get into that situation with our models because of these risk mitigation me methods in it. So my battleship, because of its risk mitigation methods, is back on the water, floating really well. And and all of the, the prior risk has been released. So now it's ready to take on new risk. It's been sort of the holes have been sort of filled in. It's sailing smoothly. And and now it's ready to take on future risk. So the things I'm looking at at the moment are uh, this this um, some of these good trends in the com soft commodities like cotton, coffee, soybeans, or long trends. We're getting some um, good trends starting to arrive in the energy, such as spot spot Brent and spot crude. And I've got quite a large number of shorts arising, such as uh, Euro GBP, um, AUD CAD, um, Bitcoin. Um, that's triggered in my systems. And um, I'm almost triggering shorts in my NASDAQ. So, um, you know, um, it's going well, Neil. So um, after that, that nasty little shock event, um, my portfolio has adjusted to all of that and it's ready to take on more risk. So when I look at you, which of course the audience can't, but I can see you as we speak, um, you're wearing a cap that says bulls. So which, uh, so clearly that's not for the uh, Bitcoin and the equity positions that uh, it's cheering for. Yes, no, I'm, I'm sort of following my American friends over here and it's referring to a team. So uh, yes, um, yes, it should perhaps be um, both bull and bear because we're trend followers, this cap. But uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Exactly. We wouldn't want to confuse people with you being a long-only <laughs> investor, that's for sure. On our side, in terms of trend-following strategies, it was actually quite a uh, quiet week, a slightly negative week, not much uh, in terms of that, but still. Um, and that's actually despite uh, losing ground, for sure, in the equity sector. I mean, it was a pretty uh, tough week for equities, as we talked about. Um, and um, 
The good thing, of course, in terms of being uh, fully diversified is that we had other sectors that contributed. Like you, um, we had grains that did uh, pretty well. Energies uh, also doing pretty well. Fixed income was kind of mixed. I would call it a tie just to stay in the sort of sports world um, now that Australian Open has uh, begun. Um, and that's really among all the constituents uh, in that sector. Looking at the volatility space, uh, the week turned out, as people may have registered, um, to be the worst for the S&P 500 since October 2020, as the index declined more than 5.6% and closed the week just below 4,400. The VIX was up about 10 points, finishing the week around 293 and we did have several intraday recovery rallies in the S&P 500 last week, but that pattern didn't repeat itself this week. While the inflation slash interest rate cycle generally seems to have dampened the mood uh, in all risky assets, not just stocks, uh, as uh, you already mentioned, Rich. I mean, uh, Bitcoin was uh, pretty weak. It lost 15% yesterday alone. I think it's down even further as I'm looking at the screen over the weekend. And uh, it's perhaps a little bit too easy to solely blame uh, the upcoming interest rate hikes for the pain, especially as we saw the U.S. 10-year bond actually declining a little bit in yield um, for the four-day week. Nevertheless, uh, lackluster earnings uh, like in Netflix, where we saw a tumble of 20% after they came out with their report yesterday, uh, mixed with soaring geopolitical tensions over Ukraine and other parts of the world, didn't really improve investors' mood and led to the S&P 500 dropping every single day uh, on the close to clo on a close-to-close -close basis, which is rather rare by historical comparison. Even on a longer-term scale, the week uh, is a negative outlier, by the way, as only 2% of all calendar weeks since 2004 saw a larger decline, and most of those weeks were actually during the crisis of 2008, 2011, and 2020. So an interesting thing that's happening. In terms of volatility strategies, our strategy was up very slightly for the week and is still down fractionally for the month. For my own battleship, my own trend-following model portfolio, it was pretty flat actually uh, this week down about 20 basis points. It's down 1.5% for the month and therefore for the year. And in terms of the risk to stop, um, that increased a little bit. So if uh, everything got stopped out on Monday, it will lose about 8.69% which is up a little bit from 7.55% last week. Now, um, we've got still some questions from last week. We've got a few great topics um, that you brought along, uh, Rich, but we still also have a few questions that I wanted to tackle uh, with you from people like Jonathan, uh, James, actually two of, James, two of the Jameses, Adam and Irving, which we didn't get to last week, and an interesting comment from uh, Shannon, which um, we might have a chance to also just quickly touch on. So why don't we just jump into it, Rich, and see how it all goes. First question is from Jonathan, uh, which is actually down your uh, down your home stretch. Um, uh, he writes, um, I've greatly enjoyed listening to your podcast, including many of the older ones. Thank you very much, James. Oh, Jonathan, sorry. Uh, my question concerns outliers, which apparently refers to markets that result in a mega R return. I've often heard this referred to in the show, in particular hunting or searching for outliers. What is the difference about the parameters of an entry or setup that indicates a high likelihood of getting an outlier? Thank you very much. And thanks, Jonathan from Florida. That's a great question from Jonathan. 
And look, that that's the sort of question that, that keeps me up at night thinking. Um, because um, I'd just like to state that, um, I, you know, that the narrative that we've been talking about has progressively been changing from one of trend following to one of hunting for outliers. And we definitely do treat these outliers differently to what we consider trend, because a trend can be a result of numerous factors. It can be a, a random trend that has no serial correlation embedded in it, or it could be a, a, a trend component of a larger mean reverting cycle. So when we're referring to outliers, we're referring to a specific condition of the market that we're going to explore more in this podcast today, Niels. And uh, so I don't want to steal the thunder of the content, but um, what we're doing is I'd also like to change the narrative from one of momentum to one of phase shift, because what we're specifically looking for is um, these very large structural features that are universal across any liquid market um, data source. They're not um, repetitive patterns associated with the repeating condition of the market. So these particular events, these major shock events, start with some form of price shock that causes a phase shift in the system. And with that phase shift come all of the qualities of these outliers that we like, such as their nonlinearity, their um, enduring nature um, over a time series. And, and this, this momentum is built into this notion, but there's a, an explanation we can look when we compare our method against alternative um, um, complex systems, such as earthquake events, such as tsunami events, things that we see in, in alternative systems where we get these significant shock events, which can either be what we refer to as exogenous, which means from information derived from outside the system coming into the system, or endogenous, things that are generated from within the system itself. So um, the way, just briefly, uh, without going into the detail of what we'll be talking later, the way we capture these outliers is by using long lookbacks because we're looking at these large structural features of the market as opposed to the, the normal repetitive patterns we see in individual markets. We're looking at these major structural features. So you need to zoom out in scale to, to actually understand these very large structural features because the human mind is a, is a, it's a predictive engine and it tends to focus in on a smaller scale, looking at these repeating patterns. But that's not what we're after. We're after these major structural changes or transitions in the market, which respond to these phase shifts in the market dynamics. So long look backs. We're also looking for volatility expansion, which is a sign that there's a price shock in the market. And that price shock, um, if it affects the interconnected relationships that exist in that market, such as brokers and intermediaries and institutions, they can have a one-to-many impact in that market, a non-linear um, relationship, not a, not a linear relationship, but a one-to-many relationship, which causes these cascading critical event failures or tipping points. So volatility expansion, long lookbacks, uh, uh, two of the ways uh, we actually specifically target or hunt for these outliers. But um, we're also looking at um, uh, diversifying very widely across markets using the same model 
because we we are treating all markets the same way because we're not looking at the individual characteristics of the markets themselves. We're looking at these structural shocks that are present across any possible liquid market. Yeah, I mean, lots of good points, of course, and uh, a few new terms that I now have to get used to in order to uh, talk to you clearly, Richard. Um, but what I wanted to say is just to be clear, uh, and we'll get into this in, in more detail, it's not like an outlier has to start with a massive price move. Um, and, and the example that I want to give for that is actually if you just look at some of the single stocks uh, that we talked about in, in the past that had some major moves during COVID, like Moderna, like uh, BioNTech, for example. I mean, they didn't actually start with a big price move. They they broke out, and this is also why um, Jerry has often talked about the fact that he got a really good position size because volatility was low, and, and therefore the ATR was low, and he could get actually a really good position size on that. So that doesn't have to happen necessarily. We don't know exactly when, well, maybe you tell me different in, in 10 minutes' time, but... We don't know when we get the initial breakout whether this is going to be a, 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 an outlier or not, so to speak. Um, but but let's get into that uh, a little bit um, later, of course. Um, but we certainly appreciate that question. Now, I want to jump to uh, the second part of a question that we, we started on uh, from, uh, it, this is from James, and we started on his first question last week was related to correlations, and Rob and I dealt with that uh, at the time. But there was a follow-up question I noticed, and that was that um, James writes in about a question regarding um, correlated um, markets like Ethereum and Bitcoin, and also WTI and Brent, for example. And and what he's asking for, whether we treat these as individual markets or that we treat them as separate markets and when we split them into our positions uh, or when, when we calculate positions. And let me just hit that one from my point of view, at least, James, and that is I mean, I think some people do where they kind of say, well, they're quite highly correlated, so I'm going to trade a little bit less uh, of each. Um, if it, if we don't trade Ethereum and Bitcoin uh, where, where I work, so, so we don't have any issue here. But with WTI and Brent, we do, and we treat them completely separate. So they will get the same amount of risk. There's no, you know, we don't worry about it because when we look at our total portfolio of markets, um, we're happy with the overall risk management that we apply and the correlation controls and 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 valued risk and controls and other controls that we have in terms of our um you know in terms of our risk management and 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 therefore um we take that into account that some of these markets from time to time will be exceptionally highly correlated and sometimes less so don't know if you want to add anything uh, to that uh, rich no look i agree with that Niels. i i i tend to treat each market individually because I view this classic trend following as using that the primary defense mechanisms we have for risk management is our small bet size and um, uh, through our very wide diversification and our initial stops and trailing stops. So they're our primary defense. So in this conversation you had with Rob last week, where he talked about using um, correlation measures as a way to manage risk, we don't necessarily need to be as stringent on that because our risk mitigation methods are already embedded in our systems that we trade within our diversified portfolio, which gives us classic trend followers an additional advantage because then we can afford to therefore trade more highly correlated markets. Um, pound for pound um, against alternative methods that don't have these risk mitigation methods, 
um, we can afford to trade more highly correlated markets. And that gives us a benefit in trend following land because we not only get the benefit of serial correlation, which is a horizontal correlation across a time series, but we can also get significant benefits from this vertical correlation, which is correlation across assets. So, um, you know, in times of crisis, um, we actually get a major inflow from correlated assets, um, the, yeah. the crisis that, that cascades across correlated assets. So we don't want to, um, we don't want to avoid that, that fantastic impact we get on our systems. So we've got to embrace the concept of drawdowns to be able to do this. But our primary defense mechanisms are these risk mitigation methods that are embedded in our system. So I think that gives us a bit of a, an edge over alternate methodologies that have to use other measures, such as correlation measures, to try and risk manage their portfolio. You know, absolutely right. It's a very good point. And, and I think certainly over the years we've talked about this uh, in this series, and that is that um, trend followers, we from time to time will have a lot of quote-unquote conviction or riskiness in our portfolio, but that is usually when we make the most money. It's also where we're going to have our drawdowns because that usually follows. Um, so we're going to give back some of that profit. But but that is just the way uh, trend following works. And this is also why it's for some people um, a harder strategy to embrace. Anyway, let's move on. A question from Adam coming in here. I hope you're well, still very much enjoying the shows and particularly enjoyed the two-part special over the Christmas break and the wide range of topics. Thanks very much for that, Adam. I have a scenario-based question for you and your guests regarding trend-following strategy research. Assuming you are looking at the performance by market of two strategy backtests to test your idea, strategy A and strategy B, they each trade 30 markets, assuming both backtests show good results and you would be happy to investigate each of them further. Strategy one has a higher average return across markets. However, this average is skewed by one single market where there was a large outsized return, an outlier, compared to the other 29 markets where it performed um, less than 5x uh, the next best performing market. Strategy two has a lower average return across all markets than strategy one. However, when that single outlier market from strategy one is taken out of both backtest results, strategy two's average return per market is actually greater than strategy one. All things being equal, which would you and your guests think would be the more appealing market return profile between the two and for what reason? All righty, Rich, what do you think? Well, I think um, everyone will know what I'm going to say. Um, and, and this question, Adam, I think comes from a mindset that is more a statistical mindset that, that tends to think they should exclude outliers from their analysis because they're aberrations. But because we specifically hunt outliers, um, we, of course, want to include outliers in our analysis because if we are comparing those two scenarios, we want to know that our systems can catch these features that we refer to as outliers. If we exclude them from our analysis, the performance returns are going to be generated from some alternative source, which tells us that our models are either curve fit for some different edge or they're curve fit for random noise and they're simply performing well. So, we include outliers in our analysis specifically because we target them and hunt them. Um, and that is our bread and butter as, as um, classic trend followers. So um, I hope that makes it clear from my perspective. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't really have much to add to that. But I do want to say uh, an extra thank you for you to you, Adam, not just for your question, but I just read your your last part uh, of the uh, of of your email. And that says, I often recommend your show to new traders and know they enjoy them. So I really appreciate that support. We uh, we love that for sure. Question from Irving. Um, he writes lots of wisdom from the whole crew. You discussed markets versus models um, as a beginner. I only have one model so far, which I'd like to test on as many markets as possible. But how do I enter 100 markets as a private investor? And also, how do I employ my system? That's probably close to your heart. I'm sure you get a lot of those uh, questions um, in uh, in your day-to-day, uh, Rich. I, I certainly do, Neil. So, look, capital limitations <coughs> that most many of us small retail traders face is a major obstacle for trading classic trend following. There's no question about that. So, you know, there, there's a decision you can make. Um, do you want to benefit from the fruits of trend following? Um, if so, invest in the professional fund managers themselves rather than going through the heartache that I've had to do over many years to get inside the, the nitty-gritty of these techniques and find out novel ways to be able to use different leveraged instruments to achieve the, the same principles that the classic trend followers use. So the classic trend followers are typically CTAs that trend uh, uh, using futures, um, stock, um, stock, um, um, stock um, results, um, but I trade CFDs, which is a, a leveraged instrument, and there are pros and cons to lef- CFDs. But um, of course, the, the 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 cons of CFDs is that um, the benefit of these instruments is that you pay a much higher transaction cost, and also you pay a much higher holding cost um, to trade these particular assets. However, uh, the edge that I'm particularly trying to extract from the markets is one relating to outliers, which are these nonlinear features. And under extensive diversification, the impacts of that additional cost loading into my CFDs is more than compensated by the nonlinear nature of these fantastic outlier moves we get in these markets. So for trend following, um, these instruments for the small retail trader, such as CFDs, do offer you the ability to put on training wheels to at least apply the sustainable principles of the classic trend-following fund managers on the basis that you want to understand their technique. And hopefully this builds your capital to a point where maybe you make a decision, well, now I fully understand the technique, let's invest with them. Um, And that way I can achieve much greater diversification, less transaction costs, and all of the fruits of that technique. But gosh, do I really understand them. Yeah, great points, by the way. And let me just add to that uh, for you, Irving, a couple of things. One, go back to last week's episodes with Rob. He went in quite a lot of detail uh, in terms of pros and cons to the uh, trading of CFD, which was prompted by another question uh, we had. Um, And there is actually a lot to that. It's not necessarily as straightforward as, as it might seem. That would be one thing. And by the way, let me uh, sort of uh, plug a little bit of a, a, a commercial, so to speak, for, for Rich and I, because we just we started publishing not long ago, kind of a, a monthly performance update on the blog uh, of TTU, where you can actually see how we think about a method, uh, and we lay it out completely, a method as to how you can select a portfolio of five CTAs, we disclosed the criteria we used 
and we disclose how the this selection model would have performed um, for for quite a lot of years. Um, and so I think that also helps you uh, in time in trying to kind of uh, assess maybe the benefits uh, or or not uh, in terms of using external managers. Um, and uh, we are just getting ready to announce um, the new lineup because it's a lineup that changes once a year. Um, so we are just about to announce the new lineup of the managers uh, who were selected based on our criteria. Um, that's going to be posted, uh, I think, relatively soon. So, um, so lots of stuff you can dig into. And by the way, now that I'm thinking of it in terms of the new website, um, I think I finally managed to get the old uh trend barometer data both for markets and for sectors up and running and actually it looks like it's updating correctly so it's been it's taken a while but well done, all of the was. information <laughs> well not so much me uh, i have to say but well done my web developer shane so uh, but um no i think um hopefully uh, you you can all now go to the website under the resource section and you can get a lot of the old data that i used to publish but it's been offline for a little while Let's move on to uh, another question from James. Another James, I should say. Um, Happy New Year, uh, right, James? I hope you had a pleasant festive break, albeit probably always feels like a distant memory. I can only concur to that. Firstly, I must congratulate you and your team for an exceptional part, a two-part series at the end of the year with all the team, probably one of my favorites. Thanks very much, James. I had a question. Could you share some insights into correlation risk management, for example, if you are fully invested across various time frames and you start to get a new signal on an instrument which is has a reasonably high correlation of say 0.6, are you scaling? Uh, are you scaling both? Similar, if you had two positions where you scaled due to high correlations and then you get an exit signal in one, would you increase your positions in the remaining one? So on and so forth. So again, James, let me just quickly sort of touch on that from from our perspective. So again, for the for the uh, TTU trend model, um, I don't look at correlations whatsoever. Uh, it's very simple. Uh, all signals are independent. So it, they will take the positions it gets. And I have, you know, when designing the strategy many, many years ago, we kind of decided on what markets uh, would go into the portfolio and we were comfortable with that. And that hasn't changed. You can, in fact, see in the monthly blog post, you can see the full track record now of the TTU model, at least back to year 2000, maybe even 1990. So uh, feel free to check that out. Um, and so, so in in that kind of simpler version of, of trend following, um, I don't even take into account uh, correlation once the position is on. The company I work for, on the other hand, has uh, a, a more advanced, you could say, uh, approach to this. And, and again, we look at the whole portfolio. We are not so concerned about the correlation between two markets, but we do look at the overall correlation as part of the overall risk uh, in the portfolio. Um, it doesn't mean that if you get a new signal in Brent that you start scaling out of everything else, but it could be that if you're building up um, positions and you get higher, higher correlation uh, building up at the same time just from the market moves, that overall you have to reduce your your risk across uh, the portfolio, uh, not just in a single market, but that would be to control the overall risk of the portfolio. I think that's way too complicated for an individual investor. And I think, um, I'm pretty sure, I mean, I would say the same for for how Jerry trades and for, for maybe for most of us, maybe with the exception of Rob, 
Um, we just look at individual uh, trades and we treat them uh, on an individual basis. And, you know, trend following has worked perfectly fine uh, with that. So I, I don't think you might reduce a little bit of volatility if you do it the more advanced way, but it doesn't necessarily mean you get a better overall return. I think I, I don't think you can make that claim uh, necessary. Those would be my thoughts, Rich. Anything you want to add to James's question here? Nothing to add, Niels. I concur. Okay. Before we jump into your topics, Rich, uh, which will definitely also take up some of uh, our time today, I do want to acknowledge uh, um, an email I got from Shannon a couple of weeks ago. We didn't get to it last week um, because he actually uh, refers to the latest memo of Howard Marks. And I'm a big fan of, of Howard Marks. I think he's a, a brilliant mind and I love reading his memos. What I hadn't picked up, maybe because I hadn't actually read his latest memo until I, this was pointed out, is that in his latest uh, memo that came out um, maybe, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, it's called Selling Out. He actually, um, he doesn't talk about trend following in the most positive um, way. Um, he, he says, uh, and I think this is a quote, we know that retail investors tend to be trend followers as, des as described above, and their long-term performance often suffers as a result. <laughs> and so I guess we have to, on this channel, take a little bit exception to that uh, Quote, unless he means, which I'm sure he does, a long-only trend-following um, trader, that might well be that you would, you know, lose out compared to bust just buy and hold. But that's not the world we live in. Um, so uh, I will uh, just say that apparently now I don't agree with everything that is written in, in Howard Marx's memos, but for the most part uh, I do. But I... Certainly appreciate um, that. Did you read his memo, uh, Rich? I know I only gave gave you this uh, like Look, yesterday. Or I, I think I didn't, Niels. But because I come from the retail world and I've certainly had my head in it for a very long period of time, I can tell you that those retail traders that consider themselves trend traders, they've got a different interpretation of what trend trading is about than what we discuss on this program here. So. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, that might have been a, a quick comment from Howard. I do love his comments generally. However, I do take exception to what he was saying there. And, um, you know, it, it's poles apart what we talk about on, on this podcast versus how uh, many retail traders consider what they do as trend following. For instance, maybe we should send a memo to Howard Marks about... Uh, you know, what outliers are and market phase shifts and these things that we discuss. And, and maybe he can get an enlightened sort of idea of what we're about these days. Well, you have to be careful with what you promise here, because I actually do know someone, which I learned only recently, who knows him. So we have to be careful here, Rich. I might actually take you up on that. But what I will say, and this is kind of something that, you know, I think is interesting, right? Because when I kind of think about the the, the general tone of, of 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 these memos, and of course, uh, you know, Oak Tree buys distressed securities, so something that should be quote unquote really cheap when they buy it, and should only go up from there. Um, the, the thing I still struggle with is, and maybe because people haven't had to really worry about it in the last fifteen years or so, 
is this thing about just holding on to a losing position. And I was just, while you were talking before, um, because, of course, we, we can't um, ignore, um, you know, the, the virus, so to speak. So it's just looking at the two stocks that um, have really been in focus when it comes to the vi- virus, Moderna and BioNTech. Of course, Pfizer would be the same. I'm sure it's the same picture, right? And you could say that from a trend-following perspective, you caught, if you had traded those and you got long when they broke out, that would have been an outlier trade, probably, you know, they went up 20-fold in price, so that's definitely an outlier. But would you say that it's that it's correct to hold on to those shares? Because right now, both of them are down 60% from their highs six months ago. To me, that's way too much to give back, um, frankly. So, so this is why where I'm, I'm definitely not agreeing with these sort of long-term buy and hold. There's nothing else you need to do. Um that does just seem crazy to me. Um, we are starting to see that some of these quote-unquote bubble stocks have given back significant value. Um, everybody's darlings, um, uh, you know, the ARK Invest Fund, Kathy Woods Funds, no criticism, but they could do nothing wrong and the stocks, uh, the, the, the ETFs uh, went up dramatically. But they've also gone down dramatically in the last, you know, year or so. And... Um, why would you hold on to uh, something that just keeps going down? Um, so anyways, maybe it's just our philosophy that is just completely different. All our minds that are completely different wired, I guess. Um, Do you mean our correct philosophy, Niels? Of course. There's nothing else but trend following, right? Trend following plus nothing. I think that was the title of our <laughs> our two-part uh, episode. Of course, completely stolen from Jerry, who has been saying that for many years. Although we've often talked about that in an overall portfolio, um, you know, I don't consider that you should only have trend following, but I think it needs to be a, a, a big portion of what you do. Um, so anyways, um, now we want to dig into the topic that you brought along in a sense, not only today, but in the last many months uh, and kind of got us all focused on the hunt for outliers um, and I think what we want to do today is to try and let you explain so that we can all better understand what we mean by these outliers and maybe to just frame it a little bit um, because uh, on Wednesday this week um, or last week, however you phrase that, uh, a few days ago, let me put it this way, um, we published episode eight of the volatility series where there was an excellent discussion between Jean-Philippe Bouchard uh, of CFM, chairman of CFM, and Harry Christen, uh, one of the co-hosts here, about fi- uh, about the findings that Jean-Philippe's research uh, had in terms of what causes these major price moves in liquid financial markets. And this triggered some discussions uh, on Twitter, and that kind of helped us distill a narrative for our trend-following philosophy. So, we want to dig into the implications of this research as it provides us with an important information that helps to distill our narrative about why and how we focus our attention uh, on these major directional price moves, aka the outliers. And from research undertaken by Jean-Philippe, a number of traditional viewpoints about the theory of market behavior can be challenged. So let's drill down into some of these implications as major price moves 
which Trendforce calls, we've referred to them now, thanks to <laughs> Rich, as outliers, because they are the bread and butter of our technique. And therefore, it's, of course, always important to understand them better. So with that, Professor Brennan, over to you. Thanks very much, Niels. Look, the timing of Jean-Philippe Bouchard's um, podcast uh, is fortuitous because it really gives us a chance to unite his research findings with what we're referring to as these outliers. So now just to be aware, in going forward, I'm not going to be calling um, Jean-Philippe Bouchard by his complete name. I'll just call him Jean uh, because I get tongue-twisted every time I mention his entire name. However, um, I think maybe, maybe what you should refer to him as JP because I think he does JP. refer sometimes to himself JP. I okay, think JP it is. That. Okay, so yeah. JP. Yeah. JP um, uh, did this extensive research looking at minute data across a vast array of data sets of lots of different um, liquid market data. And his findings are, are, are significant because it does certainly challenge some of the mainstream views about how markets operate. Now, just to be very careful here, Jean-Philippe's research regarded what he regarded as major price moves. So we've got to be careful in, in our assumptions here and strictly only talk about major price moves or major directional price moves, not get it confused with principles of volatility, which could be any direction, but we're talking about unidirectional major price moves and also not necessarily consider this to be applicable across all of the market mechanics that exist in the small minor price moves we might see in the market. So this can be expressed when we consider a typical distribution of market returns of any liquid market data series. And we might be familiar uh, with uh, these long-term um, histograms of this liquid market data because we inevitably find that these uh, long-term histograms have got these fat tails that exist to the left and to the right, significant uh, what we refer to as standard deviations away from any notion of a central mean of that market distribution. And it's these fat-tailed events to the left and right of the distribution that we are purely focusing on in this discussion because we've got to separate the market mechanics into two universes. There's the market mechanics that operate in the tail region of the market distribution of returns, and there is the market mechanics that operate in the bulk of the remaining distribution of returns that exists between those tail regions. So we therefore, when we're talking about trend following and, and uh, our method, we are specifically targeting these tail regions. We're saying that the mechanics in those tail regions are actually different to the mechanics that exist in the bulk of the distribution of returns. And therefore, this explains how we can break up our ideas into two forms. Those that trade convergent methodologies, which relate to the market mechanics that exist between the tail regions, and those that trade divergent methods that focus on those that trade the extreme regions of the market distribution. And don't confuse the two because the two methods that are needed to target the edge that resides in those different universes requires almost a totally opposite treatment to each other. And that's because the market mechanics are different. 
So John J.P., um, in his <laughs> magnificent research, he focused on these major price events. And he studied, uh, he was particularly interested in understanding whether information um, is immediately um, transcribed into the market, which would therefore support the efficient market hypothesis and also support the claims that at any point in time, the market represents the fundamental value of any instrument. Now, we know that um, that theory, which has been supported by traditional economics for many, many decades, is now being challenged. And his research gives a basis to understand this challenge because what he realised by looking at these major events is that there are two forms of of, um, what he refers to as major events. One derived from exogenous sources. So this is the typical way traditional economics understands um, market information getting into the market and therefore changing its fundamental value. Um, so that's exogenous events or news events, things such as um, the Omicron variant or things such as uh, a new vaccine or things such as a new technology, things that arrive external to the system that enter the system and immediately update that si- that system. That's how traditional economics has viewed Um, these these major impactful events. However, his studies conclude that that accounts for only 10% of the major directional price movements in minute data time series. 90% actually are generated from what we call endogenous factors. And this means factors that arise from within the market itself. And there is no causal link that we can use to identify the causal reasons for those endogenous features. For instance, fundamental analysis and and a lot of these methods that adopt risk premium um, means to sort of segregate the cause and effect of market price movements in the world of endogenous events have no meaning because um, these events arrive from um, these small catalysts inside the system itself that set, um, set up these, these chain, chain reaction events, the cascade through the markets. These are these endogenous events. They can't be predicted. Um, they are features that disrupt the internal geometry and the interrelationships that exist within the market itself uh, that cause this sudden phase shift of the market itself where the behaviour before and after of the mechanics of of the behaviour before and after shift. So before the event occurs, the behaviour translates to this convergent region between the tail events. However, after these events are triggered, these endogenous factors or these exogenous factors, these are sufficient to disrupt the entire system itself and break down the interrelationships that are holding together all of the different agents that participate in that system. And suddenly we find this this causal chain of events where positive feedback start influencing the agents to all act in a coordinated, synchronous behaviour, which causes this phase shift. So let me just ask you something here, just so maybe um, I'm fully understand what you're saying and, and, and making sure that maybe everyone else is understanding what you're saying. Just to paint a picture, the first one was very easy to understand. Obviously, you can have something like the virus and that is coming from the outside and that 
obviously changes things dramatically. So I'm just wondering here, last year, for example, we also witnessed these extreme short squeezes in the uh, in the markets, in the meme stocks. Would it be fair to say that that's actually an endogenous e- event because it's based on kind of the internal positioning of the market that kind of comes out of balance and and therefore it leads to some some level of shock in the market? Is, is that an example? And do you exactly, have other examples? Exactly, Niels, exactly. Uh, look, um, often it's helpful to use analogies to understand what we're talking about. So it's often hard to understand market dynamics because we've got to really look at the behaviour of all of the participants in that market. It's hard to conceptualise it. But when we look at alternate systems, we can see these endogenous events happen. So a good example. So a central assumption of traditional economics is that markets operate around this notion of an equilibrium. However, the complexity theory suggests that that is the actual incorrect um, analogy or assumption to use. It says that markets actually operate far from equilibrium on the verge of these phase state changes where we get ordered behaviour and then we get a phase state change to disordered behaviour or almost chaotic behaviour. So when we talk about complex adaptive systems, they've got their own energy bound up with the relationships that exist with the participants, these one-to-many relationships not these linear relationships, but these non-linear relationships. So, for instance, an example is an institution such as um, uh, Lehman Brothers. Um, they have got a multiple uh, millions of participants, agents, all connected to them. So when we get a failure event in that one um, entity called Lehman Brothers, the event cascades to those millions of participants, a one-to-many relationship. And we can see that that therefore influence other agents. So it's the interrelationships in the system. And, and as we get these greater connections that exist within systems, we get greater and greater power laws existing in these systems. These power laws are these, um, these nonlinear relationships or these nonlinear laws that relate to a small change in the system at a strategic point that disrupts the the fundamental architecture of that system. That small change can cause massive change, a nonlinear relationship expressed by a power law or an exponential function. So this is a far better way to understand endogenous events. And and so if we look at a system such as um, a landslide, we notice that uh, the landslide occurs on a system that is far from equilibrium. For instance, it doesn't occur at the base of the valley. It occurs up in the mountaintop. So it's perched um, on an apparently quasi-stable sort of elevation where things seem stable. However, it might take a rifle shot or it might take a small sound event. It might take uh, an an acid um, that disrupts how the bonds are held together of a major structural system. It might take a temperature change to disrupt the internal relationships of those systems, to suddenly create this cascading avalanche internally generated from within the system. We can't predict these things. So the 90% of these endogenous events versus the 10%, we certainly know news events. We might not know the outcome of a news event, but we know that they are these disruptive events. But they have a different signature 
to these endogenous events. Now, the signature to a news event, as we all know, is we get a news event that enters the system. It's new, hasn't been heard of by the system. A new vaccine, a new whatever, comes into the system. We get this instantaneous volatility expansion um, from that, that news. And because people understand the causal reason for that news event, or they, they say, oh, well, that's because of a new vaccine, the event dissipates very quickly like over days. However, these endogenous events, they start from a very small seed and they build in intensity to a critical point and then they take a long time to dissipate. So the length of this period of shock is very much like seismic shocks of earthquakes, these major disruptive events that are not just single events. They occur over a time series, an extended time series, and they take a long time to decay. They take a long time to rise or, or, or they accelerate. Um, so we're looking for this initial acceleration to explain them, but they accelerate to a critical point and then they slowly decay, but over a very extended time frame. Now, during that zone, we, we refer to that as serial correlation. In other words, we refer to the memory that's exhibited in that, um, that system that takes a long time to decay as, as a memory. So systems having a memory, and that's another way of talking about systems have these features called serial correlation. Now, that is these features, this serial correlation, that gives these trends, these, these extensions, these volatility extensions or enduring nature for long periods of time until they dissipate. This is a way to understand outliers. So therefore, with this new understanding that, that JP puts into our sort of um, our lexicon, we can start thinking in sort of different ways. How do we capture the, the, the nature of these massive endogenous events and capitalize on it? And that's what we do with our trend following process. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's very important uh, and, and, and a great discussion or explanation that you, uh, that you gave there. I know there are lots of points that you wanted to hit on this particular point, so I'm not entirely sure how far we got down to that, so I'm going to let you uh, catch your breath and uh, continue because I know there's obviously going to be another topic within this uh, that we're going to discuss as well, but I need to uh, just let you uh, continue your lecture today, Professor. Look, I, I think I think I've explained the the basic broad principles. Now, there's there's another yeah. principle that was explained by um, JP uh, on yeah. the podcast, and this is uh, what we call the the square root principle. Now, we see this in physical systems, the square root principle, and and so for instance, when we understand things like gravitational effect, uh, you know, we think in terms of the easier one, not the hard one. So we think in terms of Newton's gravitational equation, which is the separation of mass divided by the square root of the distance. The square root is the important thing. What this means is that the, the signal of gravitation dissipates over um, a long term, and it's a nonlinear dissipation. So the effect of the, the magnitude of the gravitational strength is not a linear relationship. It, it is a square root relationship. And we find this same square root relationship existing in volatility series in financial markets. And this adds a bit more substance to what um, JP is talking about with his endogenous and exogenous moves and how 
they they have different signatures, but both both endogenous and exogenous events take time to dissipate. Now, if, for instance, markets were perfectly priced or efficient in nature, the traditional theory says, well, they immediately update that information and the fundamental value is immediately recognised. However, this significantly challenges um, that principle because of this decay length, this long-term rise of the, the, the critical point to a critical point and then this decay length. This non-linear dynamics that occur in the market over an extended time series really throws into question the ability of markets to instantaneously update, and it's a progressive change. So markets are semi-efficient at best, as opposed to efficient, and markets therefore do not necessarily immediately represent fundamental value. So this, therefore, um, answers a question that I think Robert Schiller proposed called the excess volatility problem, because the excess volatility problem of Robert Schiller suggests that this extra volatility we see in the market cannot be explained by fundamental causes. And so we can ascribe these endogenous factors as these non-predictable things that we, we know happen because we know earthquakes happen. We know um, these massive, in fact, almost every complex system we see, we see um, the impacts of what we call a Pareto distribution as opposed to a normal distribution unfolding. Tail events are the, the, the norm in complex adaptive systems. They're not these sort of aberrations. They occur all the time. And that's because of these interconnections that exist in the market itself that create these nonlinear amplified positive feedback effects. So it is really giving power and substance to our argument about um, our need to f- determine, firstly, what, what are these outliers? What are the, the reasons for their occurrence? So we've got a reason now. We know that that reason supports our cause and that we always say we can't predict the timing of these events. And that's exactly right, because the, the things that set off these, these chain reactions or these nonlinear events are so small but their impact is so massive, we will never pick up the minute necessary to identify what was that initial small factor that set that chain events occurring. So there is no point with our method in targeting outliers adopting any form of predictive methodology. So our method, our trend-following method, simply needs to appreciate that these are far more occurrent than what a normal distribution applies. They're far more frequent they're much more massive than what the predictive brain can ever infer because we always, using our predictive brain, we know that these things exist, but we always underestimate these tail events, the size of these tail events. And so the trend follower needs to adopt this very counterintuitive posture that is so different to the posture that is adopted within this stable regime that exists within the tail regions it's got to adopt a totally counterintuitive posture where it doesn't predict. It adopts risk mitigation methods in its system itself to protect itself from adverse nonlinear moves because it's operating in this nonlinear environment. It knows that these features are universal across any liquid market um, data series and occur with regular frequency. Therefore, it can uh, benefit from the bounty that the market by its own sort of um, gives to people, 90% of the market moves uh, through these endogenous events, 10% from news events. So, you know, I remember um, all of the focus in my retail world was the news event. What's the news event? How to predict the news event? 
And they miss the whole picture of, well, how do you predict that endogenous event 90% of the time? These are the things that adopt this counterintuitive posture that the trend followers adopt. Now, many people think there's not much science to it, but I beg to differ. There is a science and an understanding of how complex system behaves. And I don't think traditional finance really understands that. And JP brings to uh, the trend following community this wonderful research piece that just adds canon, um, canon weight to their, their um, narrative. Indeed. And, and just to add to what you uh, just said, you know, the other things that we then have to do in order to capture these things in terms of doing things that most people don't want to do um, is one, we have to accept that we're going to be wrong most of the time. Uh, we have to accept volatility and drawdowns because, again, we're kind of waiting, um, you know, for for uh, for the next big uh, opportunity, uh, knowing full well that they happen rarely, which we'll come to in a second. Um, and thirdly, we're going to be doing things that most people don't like, and that is buying things that have already gone up in price, and we're going to be selling things that have already gone down in price exactly the opposite of the conversion strategies, which basically are selling the highs and buying the lows, um, you know, which is what you have been taught pretty much from when you start learning about investing, oh, buy low, sell high, you know, that's how we understand it. And we come along and say, no, 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 sell, you know, buy high, sell higher, or, or sell low and, and buy back lower. And, and it's just so difficult. So, um, yeah, as much as we try on this channel to try and explain and 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 promote this different kind of thinking, we know full well we'll be the first ones, uh, even after you know, 20, 30, 40 years of doing it, we're gonna be the first ones to raise our hand and say, we know this is difficult. And sometimes it's probably too difficult for people to do themselves, which is also why we say, then just go and ask someone to do it for you. Anyways. So I already revealed a little bit of the things we want to talk about now because on one hand, we're now saying, well, these events happen rarely. They may happen. Oh, by the way, let me insert one thing I'm just, I was thinking about when you talked, Rich, and that is this kind of markets being in balance most of the time, but then suddenly they come out of balance, which is when these things happen. We may not see them. This is actually something that uh, Professor Andrew Lowe talked to me about uh, a few years back on the podcast where he explained why he wasn't, in a sense, in agreement with the efficient uh, market hypothesis, but actually argued for his own theory, and that is the adaptive market hypothesis, because, yeah, markets are efficient, they're just not efficient all the time, and you get this slight tilt from people being more bullish or being more bearish, and, and that can actually lead to some chain reactions, as we just talked about and, and as we saw with some of these short squeezes that that took place, um, which had you know a profound effect on the market. Um, so um, yeah, very interesting indeed. Look, just just to quickly add, add, add Neil, so yeah, I, I think the way to think about this market is uh, here's a simple analogy. Don't think of the market as being at at um, at like liquid water at zero degrees. Think of the the market being at simmering temperature at about 80 degrees. So most of the time it's placid, but it's got this pent-up energy inside it. And all it takes is a small power move um, into 100 degrees to totally change the mechanics of the system into a gas. So then we've got to deal with 
a gas as opposed to the mechanics that operate in the, the warm, tepid water. Um, that's the way to think about what we are suggesting here. In we're targeting, um, we're targeting these points where where the market has this phase shift, a significant phase shift where the behaviour totally changes, and therefore we need a very counterintuitive posture to do it. And we, like any other trader, adopt the predictive mindset. We're as guilty as anybody else, and so we therefore have to use a systematic rules-based process to stop us thinking. And our systematic rules-based process uh, basically overrides our temptation to predict. Um, that's that's the secret to our success, this systematic process-driven uh, exercise that we call this classic trend-following method. Indeed, indeed. Okay, so as we talked about before, uh, on one side, we, uh, we know that these events don't happen that frequently, although it may they may happen more often than we actually think, they're not frequent events. But then again, of course, sometimes they happen more frequently during a period of time, like we may have seen in some markets in the last couple of years, there may have been more outliers um, than what we would normally have uh, seen. But then again, we often discuss on the show, and certainly Jerry is a big uh, advocate of, and, and re reminds us all about the importance of sample size, meaning we have to have enough trades in our in our systems, in our back tests, to uh, to get the confidence that we need in order to follow the system. So the 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 natural question um, becomes for you, Rich, is so how do we marry these two in terms of on one hand knowing that it doesn't happen so often, at the same time we want enough. Uh, sample size uh, of these events to get the confidence to actually say, yeah, this is the right uh, way to do it. Yes, Niels, this is one of these nuanced riddles that Jerry throws at us from time to time, and he's exactly right, but there is a strong nuance to it. So we know that these outliers are fairly infrequent. Um, so, And we know that these outliers are these universal features found in any liquid market. So we adopt the process that builds our sample size by firstly um, diversifying widely across any liquid market because we know these events can occur in any liquid market data and we also know from JP that they are much more frequent than we assume and a lot of them are from these endogenous causes as opposed to news events or exogenous causes. So we know all of this. So by diversifying widely, so let's assume we're a trader with a 30-year trading life. Now, if we focused on a single market, we might only have maybe five of these massive um, structural events occurring in the, this liquid market data over that 30-year time horizon. That's a sample size of five. Well, golly gee, that's far too low. How do we increase the sample size? Well, we increase it in the first way by diversifying widely. So we're talking hundreds of return streams. Um, and also we, through our method of ATR normalization, we treat each of those liquid market data series exactly the same way. We normalize all of those market data series. Now, what we're doing through that normalization process is we're making the data basically the same as other data uh, in terms of 
It's just data to us. The nature of the instrument, the fundamental qualities of that instrument, uh, the intrinsic um, um, uh, behaviour of that single instrument holds no truck with us. We are concerned about these structural major shifts. Therefore, we treat all markets the same way. Um, and we do this by diversifying widely. So our sample size suddenly goes from five outliers in our series. And to catch those five outliers, we know that we've probably had to have 90 or so trades to catch those five outliers in that series. But we multiply it by 100 markets. So that increases the frequency at the portfolio level of outliers. And we're treating all the markets the same way. So it's just sample size. It's increasing our sample size. Now, coming with that increased number of outliers in our portfolio, we also have an increase in the unwanted noise associated with that amplification of 100 times. But the outliers are nonlinear features that are many orders of magnitude greater than the linear noise that is the unwanted baggage we carry with our portfolio. So therefore, even though we, we with over 100 markets, we accommodate 100 times as much noise, that's linear noise, but we've got 100 times more outliers, which is 100 times more nonlinear outliers to significantly overcompensate for that level of noise that we've added through our wide diversification. That's step one. That's the okay. first way to hunt for these outliers, through di extensive diversification. The way we do that, small bet size, um, single entry, single stop, single exit. Now, those simple rules allow us to capture all different manifestations of forms of these endogenous and exogenous events. Because if you think of um, these earthquake events, these major events, they come in all shapes and forms. Some have sporadic, uh, intermittent, major seismic events. Some are fairly continuous in nature. These, these impact events or these, these, these major um, endogenous or exogenous events, which decay over fairly long periods of time, have a range of different forms. So the simplicity of our method allows us freedom to be able to ensure that we capture as much of that outlier signal as possible, and we're not too prescriptive or exact in the number of um, parameters and optimize, uh, you know, all of these factors that a convergent trader focuses on to be precise and accurate in relation to a repeating market condition. Well, these don't, these conditions don't repeat, but they're big and many different forms and over a long period of time. We want a non-precise method that gives room to breathe, enables us to capture as much of that, that signal, including all of the positive and negative volatility in that signal, um, but over this extended period. So a, a simple method supports our technique. Yeah, and no, I was just going to, sorry to interrupt your flow here, but but hence, hence what we've talked about from time to time, um, loose pants fits all. Exactly. Loose pants to catch these outliers. That's exactly right, Niels. So, now we, so we've now explained how diversification sort of allows us to increase the number of outliers and their, their impact in our portfolio trade distribution because Whilst we've picked up this additional noise, it's far less than the impact of these outliers in our portfolio. Now, this is where we, uh, in our process, we've got, um, you know, you think of this like um, distilling a, a fine whiskey from, from okay. a lot of wheat and chaff. Okay, so 
let's think of this as a, a distillation process that distills the chaff from the wheat. This is where we adopt um, two principles. One is a look-back principle. Now, we've explained how these outliers are these huge magnitude events. Now, they are not contained within a particular scale order. They actually extend over multiple scales, these events. From the small scale, you see these outliers, to the next level of scale up, to the next level of scale up. These massive magnitude events, these are scale independent effectively, or they're almost scale independent, and they span numerous time frames. So if we just focused on a short-term time frame trend-following model, we'd capture a lot of false signals with those outliers. So we still catch those outliers, but accommodated with that outliers that we caught, we'd also get a large amount of additional linear noise from mean reversion, you know, whipsaws, all of these things accommodated with our short look back. So by extending our look back, we still get the same number of outliers and their impact, provided we don't do it too extremely. So by going from a short term to then a medium term to a long term, if we go in these sort of look backs that extend over um, a, a fairly sh short term progression, maybe from uh, 25 days um, in short term space, now we're dealing with 50 days, 75 days, 100 days as far as our look back. We still get the impact, the beneficial impact of these outliers in our portfolio trade distribution, but far less noise, far less of these linear, um, linear sort of price movements that we're not concerned about because they're non-material to our cause, and we're not targeting those non-linear. We're, we're targeting the tails of the distribution and only focused on that. We want to avoid the churn of the normal everyday market activity. We want to avoid the the individual characteristics of each individual market, because that that, that that that's fluff, that's tiny amount of chaff to these magnificent signals that we're really focused on called these outliers. So by stepping out our lookbacks, we are distilling our process to, to still retain the same number of outliers in our histogram at the portfolio level, but we've got far less noise accompanying that, which dilute the impact of those beneficial outliers. Here, just maybe to to clarify, so the noise that we want to avoid is the noise in the markets that would effectively stop us in and out too often. But in doing so, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Rich, we do accept more noise, quote unquote volatility, in our daily PNL because the markets are still going to be noisy. We just don't want them to interrupt. Our long, the long-term trend, quote unquote, the, the 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 hunt for the outlier, so to speak. That's where we need to give it more room to move. But of course, that shows up in in our daily volatility, which is one of the reasons why we, um, you know, uh, one of the things that has always been an issue. You could say with with people looking at returns, whether they were daily and monthly, and they were pointing at, oh, but CTAs are much more volatile. 
comparing it to, in the extreme, um, say a private equity fund that values its positions once a quarter. Yeah, of course, we're going to be more uh, volatile because we realize our risk every single day. And I think people need to be aware of that distinction uh, when we talk about noise. Yeah, so look, to explain this, so I, I, I did a, um, a comparative models. Um, um, I think it was uh, Bruno Campos. He's a good friend of us, trend followers here in yep. this community. Sure. He asked this question. I explained to him um, the difference between two um, trend following models, one being a short-term trend following breakout model and one being a medium to long-term breakout model. They adopted exactly the same parameter sets in, in, in terms of um, stop, um, uh, trailing stop. Everything was the same except their look back. The short-term models had a short-term look back of, say, 25 days on average because I was using five systems. So, uh, you know, I wasn't cherry-picking. I was using an average of short-term models to get, sure. say, 25 um, look back for that average. In the same way, I did a, a, a 50 and 100 uh, look back for the, the medium and long-term model. So that was the only difference in their change. Now, when we look at the performance of those models, we, we understand why the short-term model has 536 trades as opposed to the medium and long-term models, which only had 364 trades about. And that's because our lookbacks are excluding trades that our short-term models are taking. So this distillation process I'm talking about is a method or a process of exclusion. It's excluding the price signals that we don't want in our models by using our look back. Because when you actually look at the histograms, now this is the important thing, you won't see this in the trade results or the statistic itself. And as Bruno Campos says, hey, you don't see this in a t-test, and he's exactly right. Because we're not, we don't see this in a statistical sample because we're looking at outliers, which are these nonlinear features, many orders of magnitude but bigger than these, these linear events. However, when we compare the histograms of the short term versus the medium to long term models, you know what you find? You find that we have exactly the same number of outliers or almost exactly the same number in both models. So we're not. Um, capturing less or more outliers by our look back. But where the difference is, is what I'm referring to as the linear zone of trades, which is the bulk of trades, you know, the 85 to 90% of our trades, because 10% of our trades are outliers, but that 90 to 95% of nonlinear trades, that's where that increased trade frequency hits us, that 536 trades versus 364 trades. It's all non, uh, these linear trades and those linear trades can be small losses or small wins because that's the way um, when we're dealing with our trend-following models, we, we are not capturing the characteristics of the market itself. We're capturing these, um, these mechanics, mechanical features of the liquid market data. So um, the, these linear events can be losses or wins. They don't always have to be losses. We can get lots of the randomness allows us to have many wins and many losses but they're nothing. They're random in relation to um, what we are generating. Our edge is generated from these nonlinear features. The rest is random to us. It's not random to a convergent trader because they're, they're targeting the oscillations or the repetitive frequency of the winds in those linear events. We don't care about that. That's that universe that they operate in. 
we are exclude through the powers of exclusion. We exclude that, and we're dealing with a, a, a universe that only deals with these tail regions. So we, we want to exclude what we refer to as noise, the things that do not materially impact our PNL. Um, so that's that that's how to view um, this distillation process that I'm referring to um, through uh, using these longer lookbacks. But um, it just, just one more thing we also need to address. Our models also look at, to coincide with these long-term lookbacks, we need an extra, an extra mechanism, and we call this volatility expansion. And this is a confirmatory signal in addition to these long-term lookbacks to say, hey, something is fundamentally changed in the nature of the market. Because we are looking at um, these, these zones of phase shift in the market, we want some confirmatory measure to say something significantly changed in the market. So we want some form of volatility expansion there, such as a, an ATR confirmation me method or a, um, a momentum, a, an accelerating momentum method at these particular zones we're interested in to say, should we be interested in this or is this long-term look back just delivering us a a random sort of move in a trend? Is there some additional substance or impetus driving this um, this endogenous increasing sort of um, event that comes to a, a climax and then takes a long time to dissipate? So we're using this confirmatory measure of volatility expansion in addition to our lookbacks to really distill our outlier signal from this in this process. Yeah. So... Although I'm very mindful of the time, we've been going already for an hour and 20 minutes, so I do want to wrap it up. But I just want to share with uh, our listeners that I think I have persuaded you to write a little summary of today's topic that I'm going to put on the blog post in a few days because it is such an important topic to understand. And as you rightly say, what we started to do, thanks to you, what we started to do is we are introducing new terms we are encouraging people to think about trend following in a slightly different way, maybe a more, quote-unquote, scientific way that might lead more investors to actually understand why we do what we do and why they need this in their portfolio. But I want to just finish off, and maybe we can do this as a relatively short answer, that is, what do you think is the, what impact what importance does it have that we are changing the narrative? That I would like to hear your thoughts on. So you'll notice in this conversation, we didn't mention the word trend much. And um, we're using the term outlier much more because we've realized that um, there are numerous forms of trend. Every, everyone effectively trades trends in this market, whether we're a convergent player or a, a divergent player. So by using sure. the term trend, it's confusing to many people. And you know how I said that a lot of retail traders who consider themselves trend traders are not adopting what we're doing? That's because everyone has their own view of what trend is. Everyone can identify trend. However, outlier now more precisely defines this narrative for us to give us a bit more punch, give us a bit more reason for, hey, this is not a simplistic method. There's actually incredible nuance to this, and it's science. This is the science of complex adaptive systems, and we are using these very efficate, simple models to extract this edge from the market data 
Uh, and these simple models haven't been designed because, or simply because we're dumb bunnies. These simple models have been designed simply because we use simple rules in these complex adaptive systems that are incredibly hard to predict. And a, a good example is we, we all know how starlings, uh, when they operate as, as a flock, move in these beautiful patterns. Now, they are using, each of those starlings is using a little local rule, which is saying, keep me a defined distance away from my neighbour at all times. That's the rule they use. But that allows this entire flock to have these majestic patterns and forms through these simple rules. But here's another simple rule that we adopt. Cut losses short and let profits run. It means that we do not have to understand the incredible details of these complex adaptive systems because they defy understanding because these systems are these amazing, um, complex, interconnected um, systems, agents, behaviour, collective behaviour, all, all consolidate together. Interrelationships manifest throughout this system and it's complex, really complex. So don't try and understand the complexity Use simple rules that simply work. And we know that they work through a validated track record. That's, that's the importance here. It's not um, how great is my statistical tool I've just developed with, uh, you know, uh, many names, including Bayes and all of these different things and, uh, you know, this highfalutin terminology that might be used. This is where Moritz, you and Jerry are saying strip back to simplicity. Strip back to simple rules. Your only hope in this complex morass is to deal with simple rules that have proven over a validated long-term track record that they work. And this is where I say amen. Fair enough. Well done. Well done. All right. Okay. With that said, let's just uh, quickly review how things uh, stand in uh, trend-following CTA land. As of Thursday night, uh, Friday, by the way, was uh, a day with a big sell-off uh, in many of the uh, risky assets. So it it wasn't a good day for trend followers, I think, but not dramatic. The SOCGEN trend CTA index up 1.3% for the month. The short-term traders index up 1.6% for the month. And the SG trend index up 2.4% for the month. Anyways, much better than the MSCI World um, Equity Index, which was down 6.39% year to date. How often have we been able to say that in the last few years? Not a lot, actually. So nice to see that sort of anti-correlation that trend followers and CTAs have been able to provide. Even the World Government Bond Index is not having a great month in January down about 1%. I've got this song coming around in my head, Neil. It's that I see a bad moon rising song. It's just going round and round in my head. <laughs> Good stuff. I think on that note, with that song from uh, from Rich's uh, head, spinning around in his head, I think we're going to leave it for this week. Um, of course, if you enjoyed uh, our conversations here, uh, please head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review. Perhaps even more importantly, Go, as one of our questioners uh, said uh, earlier today, go and find a few people to make them follow um, our podcast. That's actually uh, a great way to support us. Next week, Mark is back. So uh, there'll be more chance to tackle some of your questions. Do send them in. As usual, info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to 
get them um, done. Make sure, keep an eye out for the blog. Probably uh, early this uh, early next week, we should have a, a, a really good summary of what we talked about today um, because it is really important. And with that, from Rich and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.